0: Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Hollywood Magazine's weekly podcast where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip and sometimes the laughs so please join us and remember when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that and you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts so enjoy.
1: And welcome to Politically Speaking, Hollywood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Hollywood. And on this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an interview with former Health Secretary Gene Freeman. Before standing down at the election, Freeman helped lead the Scottish government's response to the pandemic. But first, I'm joined by journalist Andrew Learman, who's watching the Prime Minister's former advisor Dominic Cummings give it evidence on the UK government's early response to the COVID crisis. Andrew, Cummings painted an incredibly chaotic picture of the government in those early days of the pandemic, didn't he? He did, he did. Uh, just as sort of the, um, basically
2: a lot of people not really sure what was going on and what they should do. I mean, um, I think perhaps the most illustrative story of this was the was on March the 12th, where he texted the Prime Minister. He says he texted the Prime Minister, urging him, you know, that we need to impose restrictions where people with Symptoms of coronavirus. They need to stay home. We need to be getting this messaging out there. Um, but the prime minister was sort of like, eh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, and he was basically because at that point there was there was other stuff going on. You know, that Donald Trump was looking at uh, Britain to join a, a bombing campaign in the Middle East, and uh, and the press office at Downing Street were taken up. Um, with this story about the dog that Boris Johnson and his fiance Carrie Sammons, adopted. Um, apparently, Carrie Sammons was furious about this story in the Times uh, about the dog. So, you know, there was kind of a, this thing where there's this looming crisis coming, but people were like, half the building was focused on a bombing campaign in Iraq, and the other half was, uh, you know, going, um, where the worst he put was crackers, about uh, a story about a dog being neglected, and, and you know, then being forced to, to, to deal with that. So, I, yeah, yeah, it, it took. It was until like the next day when when uh, a civil servant came in and said, "We're absolutely screwed. You know, unless we sort this
1: out, we're going to kill thousands of people." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was a. It, it, there was a, a huge amount to get through, and obviously, uh, you know, Cummings' style—he was very freewheeling, but. He kind of turned his attack on uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock at one point, didn't he? And he said that uh, as far as he was concerned, there was, there was between 15 and 20 different occasions when Matt Hancock should have been, should have been sacked. I mean, what's, what's the kind of main accusation being levelled against uh, the Health Secretary?
2: Well, he accused him of lying and, and crucially, lying about the the preparations in place for the pandemic. You know, he he basically said that he warned the prime minister that if we don't fire Hancock and get the testing in someone else's hand, uh, we're going to kill people and it will be a catastrophe. Um, And he claimed that the the then Cabinet Secretary, Mark Sedwell, who's the the head of the UK civil service, told Boris Johnson that, you know, um, the British system is is not set up to deal with a Secretary of State who repeatedly lies in meetings. Mm -hmm. Apparently he also (laughs) lied about, you know, the UK's failure to deal with the PPE shortage and about treatment. He said everything was in hand, everything was fine, and, you know, it it, it wasn't. Um, You know, and there was this, uh, I, I think the other big thing was over um uh the if you remember matt hancock set this big target of uh, of a hundred thousand tests a day mm-hmm. and that became this sort of huge thing um and and, and cummings says that was uh, terrible because ultimately what it ended up doing was it sort of distracted the government from everything else they, they should be doing It basically prevented them from setting up an effective Test and trace system Cumming said he should have been fired for for that alone, so yeah and there's
1: there's a lot of um, debate in in the run up to to this appearance about whether the government uh, did or did not follow uh quote unquote herd immunity strategy, but Cummings seemed fairly clear on that 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 was the initial plan and he 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 talked about um people in government liking it to the old chicken pox parties where you would deliberately try and get your child infected with chicken pox.
2: Yeah. So he claimed that Mark Sedwell, so the, the the former head of the civil service, uh, um, should basically hold old fashioned chicken pox chicken pox parties. He said, you know, um we want Boris Johnson to go and tell on um, television and tell people to have these parties, you know, and explain the herd immunity plan. You know, if we get this disease, that's how we'll get herd immunity by September and it'll all be over. Um, you know, and basically it took a, another advisor to come in and go. Well, no, because chickenpox is not spreading exponentially and killing hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. You know, and it was just a it was a real shock when 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 that sort of the the reality of disease was was uh, presented to them. So yeah, uh, he basically said, he, and it kind of goes back to that first question about chaos. He sort of basically said the preparations. He compared them to an out of control movie. You know, it was clear we should have acted earlier, and 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 they
1: didn't. And I mean, obviously, this uh, his his appearance was uh, was long awaited by by journalists and politicians, and we've all been kind of pouring pouring over it this morning. But do do you think this kind of cuts through to the wider public? I mean, obviously, um, the, the the vaccine rollout has been a huge success for the government, and do you think this uh, appearance by Cummings will be damaging for the Prime Minister?
2: I I think it will. To be honest, I think it, uh, yeah yeah. I mean that's. I mean, in fairness, Boris Johnson hasn't really been touched by many of the scandals or many of the the problems of his government. But I think, you know, the the fact that you've got Dominic Cummings, who was his right-hand man, his number one advisor, basically saying that he was unfit, to be uh, prime minister, you know the fact that he says that Boris Johnson dismissed coronavirus as a, as a scare story, and that he was so convinced it didn't pose a threat, he suggested he should be on TV getting it injected, getting the coronavirus itself injected into his arm by by Chris Whitty, the, the chief medical officer. You know, um, and uh, you know it was just that thing of um, he said that that, that, that Boris Johnson um, was was you know it was crackers again. He used the word crackers that Boris Johnson was was the man leading the country. I look at the quote up, he says, um, it's just completely crackers that someone like me should have been in there, just the same as it's crackers that Boris Johnson was there and that the choice at the last election was Jeremy Corbyn. There are so many thousands and thousands of wonderful people in this country who could provide better leadership than either of those two. So... The fact that he's basically saying, Boris Johnson isn't fit to be leader,
1: I I think, you know, that that is going to cut through, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to question uh, why Cummings went for the role in the first place then. So we've also had um, some stats out today from uh, the care inspector Andrew, which would look at uh, uh, COVID deaths in care homes. What, What do they show? Well, so this goes back to a, a few
2: months back when a, a group of newspapers and media organisations put a, a Freedom of Information request and in asking for the, the number of COVID-related deaths for each individual care home. So you know, I'll have that much detail Say, you know, in this home, there were this many COVID-related deaths. And the care inspectorate they they rejected that. They said it wouldn't be appropriate. It would be insensitive. Um, however, the uh, the office of the Scottish Information Commissioner last week said, actually, that data should be published. And it would be lawful for that data to be published. So so basically what it shows us is, um, you know, uh, the the number of of the the, the 3774 covid related deaths in scotland between march 16th to 2020 and march 21 2021 20, um, and, and it kind of just shows you know the home with the most was the the asking care home uh, which had 33 deaths uh or 31 people died in the, the you know the Darnley the court home in glasgow um and, and and what it kind of shows is is, is basically that um you know, there's a relationship between a high number of deaths related to the, the coronavirus and, you know, the, the, the geographical location of, of that home and the size of that home. Um, but it's it's just, I think it's going to provide a lot more detail for people who have relatives or people who may have lost one in care homes. They'll be sort of perhaps get a better understanding of, of of the true scale of the virus in in that care home. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: I mean, there's there's, there's, uh, there's now going to be, uh, well, we know there's going to be a, a, at least a UK public inquiry, but potentially also uh, a Scotland specific public inquiry into the pandemic. And it's likely that um, the decision to send people from hospitals to, to care homes will, will, will form a major strand of that inquiry, isn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think, especially considering that we've had the first minister and Jean Freeman, the uh, the, the previous health secretary, who might speaking to on the podcast, you know, talking about that uh, and, and apologising for that, pretty much. Uh, yeah, definitely. So I think we had um, what three thousand and sixty one untested hospital patients uh, in Scotland were discharged to care homes between March the first and uh, May thirty first, twenty twenty. You know, one hundred and ten of those patients had tested positive. For COVID and would then charge discharge to care homes without first getting a negative test so yeah I think there are there are definitely questions over why that strategy was pursued and you know uh, yeah it's going to be yeah
1: yeah definitely definitely something that's that needs looked into yeah okay all right thanks Andrew and uh, as Andrew mentioned there we have that interview between uh, Hollywood editor Mandy Rhodes and former health secretary Jean Freeman
0: So, Jean, we last sat down to do an interview in February 2020. The oh, day my that Derek- goodness. <laughs> I know. Oh, my goodness. I know. What a time. That was the day that Derek McHugh resigned from government over news that he'd been inappropriately texting a 16-year-old boy. I can remember sitting in your office in that glass office watching boxes being taken from his office and Kate Forbes moving in. You and I were talking about very specific health issues, the deaths of two children at Glasgow's Queen Elizabeth Hospital, uh, the delayed and over-budget Edinburgh's Children's Hospital, the resignation of the chair in Lothian. It all seems so long ago. um, Bullying in NHS Highlands, chemotherapy treatments in Tayside. And on top of that, any waiting lists. No mention at that point of COVID. I don't think we'd even heard that name. And then just a few weeks after that interview, we were in lockdown. Country Mm -hmm. was in a health crisis. And I suppose, if anything, that small snapshot when I was remembering that just reveals how quickly things move in politics. Mm -hmm. You were at the centre of all of that. How did it feel being literally in the eye of that storm?
3: You know, it's a really interesting, Mandy. At the time, you don't reflect on it. You just get on uh, and do what you think needs to be done what what is the case is that we were all learning so very fast about this virus um that it wasn't flu um it wasn't a flu pandemic we were dealing with um it was something very different and uh, as we now know with hindsight you know the learning was constant and so uh, remember i remember my first Uh, statement to Parliament about it, where we were talking about an expectation of very high percentage of people being affected, a very high percentage of people uh, being hospitalised and into ICU. And the whole focus at that point, uh, and for some time, was all about what do we need to do to make sure our health service can cope with this? Uh, And so that, that then involves Really difficult decisions about stopping treatments, stopping bits of the health service, and pausing other bits so that we could redeploy and, and pivot the service towards being able to deal with what we, because this was the evidence, this is what we were being told, um, genuinely told, it was the expectation about the scale of the situation that we were going to be dealing with. Um, so I, I remember you know, um, focusing hard on, well, what do we need to do? But always at the back of your mind, there's there's a wee voice that's
0: going, oh, my God, oh, my God, what is this thing? And, and for someone like you who, who does like to have the facts, you like to be in control, not knowing those things and still making decisions. I mean, I just want to know how personally that must have felt for you. It's, it's hard. Uh, it feels hard. Uh, you're right.
3: I, I like to know uh, everything or as much as I can know about any situation so that I can decide what I think is the right thing to do. And so it's hard when, uh, you know, those who are expert and qualified are saying, we don't know that. We're not sure about that. Um, and so you're dealing with a level of uncertainty whilst at the same time you have to make decisions. That's uncomfortable to say the very least. It's uncomfortable. But there's no point in dwelling on that. Um you have to and I absolutely did trust our clinical advisors and the other experts who were working their asses off on this, that they they were um giving us the best possible advice they could. We then First Minister, me, Cabinet, then have to make the right kind of, the judgments we think are right. Um, and one of the things that that I, uh, I'm glad I learned years ago was not to be afraid of saying, I don't understand what you've just said. Explain that to me. Um, and that was really important. That's especially important when you're talking about epidemiology and uh, and all of that. You know, I'm not a clinician. And so understanding as best I could, what they were saying in language I could understand was important for me, but also important, I think, so that I could then communicate that to others like me who are not clinicians, other politicians and and others as well. And then, of course, there's all the other work that's going on in our health service. Our health service, I know everybody says this, but genuinely, utterly fantastic in how... You know, give, give them a, a common purpose and a direction and they just move heaven and earth to be there. To make sure that, you know, we, we, ha- had to, uh, we could expand intensive care, that we could quickly upskill some staff, like theatre staff, so that they could work in ICU. Um, they had a lot of the skills, they just needed a bit more making sure that happened across the country, repurposing uh, equipment to cover us for ICU uh, kit whilst the orders were coming in, and then reaching out across government so that someone like Ivan McKee was hugely helpful in trying to make sure that the orders that we already had in place in a, a highly competitive global market for PPE, for example, were coming in and that we can make that happen. So it it was really, really long hours and constant decision-making, always hoping that you were using the best advice that you could get and that you were being clear and rational in what you were doing, but really conscious that, you know, you're always conscious, I think, as the health secretary, that people's lives here are what's important. And some of what I dealt with before the pandemic, the, the mesh crisis, uh, some of what you've talked about, about both uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth and the bullying, you're very conscious that your job is about people and people they their most vulnerable, whether they're staff feeling that they've been bullied or parents of, of children who are really sick or have died. But it's
0: it, it increased tenfold, a hundredfold during that time. I mean, obviously, Jean, you're describing an evolving situation and looking um, for the advice, the best advice. But, you know, experts themselves were dealing with something very, very yeah. new. At what point, which point do you think you went in that those weeks in March, really, from a, a situation of thinking, right, this is going to be a bad outbreak of flu to, fuck? <laughs> Really, really quickly, actually, and and we went there. We went
3: there. Um, I think by the end of February, right. um, you know, December 2019, we we were. W- what is this thing in China? What is? And of course, we, like everyone else, are are looking at what's happening in Italy, and our uh, our clinical advisors and others are are because of the nature of what they do. One of the things I think we all forget is. The, the global community that is clinicians and academics. You know, we mustn't forget people like um, Stephen Reicher, a behavioural um, expert, and, and others, you know, Tom Evans uh, from Glasgow Uni, uh, Andrew Morris, all of those people. So so they're in touch with their colleagues uh, globally and they're feeding information into their thinking and, and into us. One of the things I think we were really fortunate in Is that that in our, uh, in Catherine Calderwood, uh, in Jason, and Gregor uh, Smith now, uh, we have really good communicators and people who are perfectly willing to say, this is what we know, this is what we're not sure about, but our feeling is, and we're doing X to try and confirm that one way or the other. Um, So so we were f- really, I was really fortunate in that group of people um, and then their willingness to work together and and find out as much as they could and, and then apply their knowledge and their skill to to understanding that in order to then give me the information they, they wanted to give me, they needed to give me.
0: I mean, you've mentioned two names. I mean, you've created a monster, obviously, out of Jason Leach. <laughs> Now become this personality, but the revelations when uh, Catherine Calderwood had broken the rules—that must have been a real low point.
3: Yeah, it was. It, it was a, a low point in in a, in a number of different ways. You know, I I have huge admiration for Catherine, uh, and she was great to work with, um, both in her knowledge and experience, but also just as a as a a fellow human being, another woman. She she was uh, enjoyable to work with, even in the most serious of times. Um, what what had to happen and the the position she had to take was really clear. Uh, but that's tough because there was also a bit of me thinking, I don't want to lose you. You 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 have come through some of the early parts of this, and of course I'd worked. With Catherine before, on MESH in particular, on the Women's Health Plan, so we, on Forensic Medical Services, I knew the quality of the work that, that she had delivered. So there's, a, there's a, a, a part of me not wanting her to go, but knowing that she has to, because public trust and the, the notion that there aren't separate rules uh, for some compared to everybody else was so important. And she knew that, but it, it was still a, a low point from, from that perspective. I knew that we had because it was a team, you know, that, that we weren't, Catherine wasn't going to resign and there was nobody. There was a team there and uh, Gregor had done a lot of work being very involved in in attending and observing SAGE meetings for example and so on. So I knew that we weren't we weren't suddenly going to be bereft of expert advice and knowledge, but it, it was hard. And the other thing I'd say about Catherine, I was full of admiration uh, for her for standing up in that briefing uh, on, on the day that she did and apologising um, without hesitation. Um, so, you know, that was a tough thing to do. And too many don't do that.
0: I mean, there was a delay, Jean. And when you think of the criticism, and we'll talk about Dominic Cummings in a minute anyway, but there was so much criticism, clearly and rightly, of Dominic Cummings for breaking the rules. Shouldn't Catherine really just have gone as soon as the news broke that she'd broken the rules? Well, well, she kind of did. You know, it wasn't like weeks and weeks
3: Uh, from memory. The news broke, she did the briefing with me and the First Minister on this Sunday, and on the Monday she'd resigned. Yes. Uh, you know, So we're, we're not talking uh, about huge delay here, and that contrasts starkly with Dominic Cummings. This was a, a, a highly skilled professional woman who had given so much, who has integrity, and that I think counts for a very great
0: deal. And those words might not (laughs) apply to Dominic Cummings. So, I mean, he's giving evidence as we're speaking at the moment. Um, Mm. He's already said a number of things, including that he's not the the brightest of people and that he shouldn't have had the position he had, which begs the question, why did he? (laughs) OK. But he's also said um, that when people needed us most, the government failed. Would that apply to Scotland, given that we followed pretty well the same trajectory? I, I don't think that would be. I uh, would be.
3: That would be a fair characterisation of the government in Scotland. Uh, and I know people listening to this will think, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? She was up until about ten days ago a, a part of it. I, but I don't think it is fair. That is not to say that that we didn't, with hindsight, certainly know that we made some mistakes. Uh, and actually, you know, from the outset, recognising. Without fully comprehending the scale of what we were dealing with, we said we're not going to get all of this right, you know, because there's, it's too big and we, we've never done it before. And inevitably, we're, we're going to get some things wrong. Um, and I think we've been really frank about that and will be really frank, uh, continue that, as uh, the days carry on with the First Minister and the new Health Secretary and as the public inquiry um, is set up and takes place. Um, and the, the, the difficulty is that there's a tension, right? And And the tension is there across the piece. So when you're dealing with a global pandemic, it, it is absolutely right that you try and cooperate as much as you can. You you can't do it in isolation. It, it's clear now, even now, that you know we could bring all our case numbers down. We could say to people that the the current restrictions are lifted at the right time when they're lifted. Um, but Scotland and the UK isn't sitting in some COVID-free bubble. Apart from the rest of the globe what's happening in the rest of the globe really matters. So um, in that context, even then, what what was going on in in England, Wales and Northern Ireland mattered. And so the drive is to cooperate as far as you can. That may mean that there are some decisions that that you want to take earlier that is not going to be possible. Um, For practical reasons, like who's got the money to do furlough, what happens to the economy, uh, for those very practical reasons. Uh, but we tried all the time to make sure that our primary focus was public health.
0: On that, Jean, I mean, are there particular things that you can point to? I mean, I suppose a lot of us look back, obviously, with hindsight, and as you say, it's a wonderful thing. And And people coming into the country was clearly an issue, and that was something that the Scottish government what couldn't do. Well, we we don't control the borders, um, as
3: everybody knows. And uh, I remember a discussion at UK level where they were talking about um, what what they would uh, require of uh, passengers coming in from certain countries. You remember, and so that was a passenger locator form and all the things that had to happen uh, before you got off the plane and so on. And I remember saying, but you, but we're missing the fact that people travel via hubs. So they don't come from uh, China, for example, uh, always direct. They come via other hubs. So what are we doing about uh, incoming flights from those hub areas, be it Amsterdam, be it France, whatever it might be, um, and that being dismissed, um, because there was a, a, a reluctance, I understand a reluctance, to agree with it, but there was a reluctance to uh, impose restrictions wider than was considered absolutely necessary. Um, and so, you know, we, we can't do that because uh, it's, a, it's a factual point. It's not a political point, although, you know, my political uh position is really clear to anyone listening and, and to you. I support independence,
0: but the factual point is we do not control our own borders. Could you this might be a stupid question, could you have uh closed the businesses of airports down in Scotland? You mean close the airport? Just
3: close the airport. Um possibly I, I don't I don't know the legal position absolutely on that. But there's two problems with that, Mandy. One is, A, uh, a huge amount of cost, of course, to make sure that those businesses, clo- if closed uh, by government direction, uh, can survive. But also we've got a land border and we've got a port border. So, you know, that uh, that is, it's, it's all very well to say you can do things at airports. You can, of course you can. You can do some things where, we have a different quarantining regime, uh, but we've got a land border. And what we need, did not need under any circumstances was any opportunity for people to say we were using this pandemic to make political points because, because that would completely undermine public trust. And we are only where we are just now because we have nurtured and sustained public trust in what the Scottish government is asking them to do. And we've asked them to do such a lot of really difficult things. So you, you, can't, you can't casually deal with the public's trust in you. You, you, never, you never could and never should as a politician in the middle of a pandemic. Absolutely not.
0: I suppose what I'm trying to understand is the the tensions that must have existed. That for you as a Scottish cabinet, looking at this and thinking, right, how do we protect our people? The obvious thing is, can we close a border down? But then you have to think about the political impact of that. I mean, were those discussions going on all the time that people were thinking of perhaps radical solutions to what you were dealing with, but then having to think, well, actually, how would that play out?
3: It, it's it's less. It's less about the political impact, more about the impact, more about how that would be presented in political terms, albeit that that would be false presentation, but it would be presented in political terms, which would then go to undermine public trust. we, We absolutely had to avoid any suggestion at all that, we were taking decisions in order to pursue a political agenda. So where we did take decisions that were a bit different from the UK government, maybe a bit earlier than the UK government did, we had to be able to prove that that was because uh, the evidence before us led us to make that judgment.
0: I mean, were there ideas being thrown around the cabinet table, Jean, that were quite radical and were a divergence from what was happening elsewhere, but that you almost had to discount because of those thinkings? So there was lots of there were there were lots of um ideas
3: and propositions uh, constantly, not just about something like that, but also about, you know, um what exactly do we have to do to get the health service ready? You know, where do we draw the line at the healthcare that we stop or pause? how do we for example a, another um, area that that was remarkable in the speed with which it was done is create a, a safe um, covid safe pathway so that gps can continue to to function for those who don't have covid so the community covid pathway and the assessment centers and the hubs and all of that set up and staffed in 3 weeks yeah you know there there's bits of of what was achieved that that is hugely to the credit of those who did it, not me, but those who did it. That we shouldn't miss. So there was lots of propositions and concerns and the constant balance and tension between, you know, you're very familiar and your listeners will be too with, you know, what's talked about as the four harms assessment, um, and that was that that was a constant exercise, assessing that and making hard decisions that we would have to accept a level of economic harm because the public health um, demand trumped it, if you like. And therefore, how do we mitigate economic harm within the the limited resources and powers that you have?
0: I suppose, actually, on that, I was thinking about the um, Eat Out to Help Out scheme. And, mm. and, you know, on a personal level, I just thought, I, and I'm in no way medically qualified, but I just thought that was madness. Mm. And, mm. you know, the consequences, I guess, we saw. But I also think had Nicola said, actually, Scotland doesn't want to take part in this because it's madness, she would have been completely um, criticised. Mm. Mm. And I suppose yeah. those are the difficulties you wrestle with. Yeah, it, that's, ex-
3: that's exactly right, because at, at the ta- you know, because the, the other perspective coming into it is, of course, those businesses who believed that they would be helped by that scheme. Uh, as well as individuals who, who wanted to make use of it. So you're absolutely right. Those t- tensions are constant and will continue to be constant, actually, as we work our way through this.
0: So you'll have seen, as I have, Dominic Cummings has just put out all these various tweets over the last day or so. Um, but one of the stark ones was a whiteboard with all kind of mad scribbling, strategising of what they might do. And the words, who do we save? as a question mark, is really visible. Is that a question that you had to wrestle with around the Cabinet table?
3: Not not at all in the sense of what do we need to do to try and minimise the harm of COVID on those who have it? How can we minimise the number of people who acquire the infection and what do we have to do to minimise and save as many lives as possible of those who do have it? Of course, we knew, I knew, the um, First Minister knew, she was a health secretary. She she knew absolutely, as did I, that some of what we were doing in order to achieve that objective would cause health harm in other areas. Of course, we knew that. One of the hardest decisions was pausing the screening programme. You know, we, we're really proud of our cancer screening programs, we know the capacity and we put a lot of time and effort and money into it because it can help save lives. And and that's, you know, what do you do there? Are we going to save the lives of people who've got coronavirus at the cost potentially of delaying cancer screening, which in itself carries a cost? Or not? That's you know, that's one of those things that pops up in Radio 4 is an ethical dilemma. It absolutely is an ethical dilemma.
0: You'll be on Moral Maze soon, I think. <laughs> but, I mean, on that, I mean, you're basically all the time in the, all of this having to think what is the least worst decision. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. And remember too that um, we didn't anticipate, because the evidence didn't point in this direction that it would last this long. Yeah. You know, where, where we got to last summer was we had reduced case numbers so significantly um, that you know we thought we were then going to move into a situation of how do we now ease things back and so on. And that that wasn't the case. Um, now we're in a different place now because we have vaccination. And that is uh, that alters the picture and the situation significantly. It's not a magic bullet, but it does alter it significantly. The more we we do those vaccinations, but you know, in in May a year ago, we did not think, or oh, a year from now we'll still be doing this.
0: Yeah. On on the approach, Gene. That kind of because uh, we've all heard the quotes now about pile the bodies high, etc. For that apparently come out of Downing Street. Do you think there was a fundamental difference in approach between Butte House and Downing Street?
3: Well, if those if those quotes are true and accurate, then yes, there is a fundamental approach, um, a fundamental difference in approach. It it was never. In our thinking, our conversation, our consideration, that there was any kind of acceptable level of deaths. How how could there be? How could there be? Uh, And that was you know. And you know, I don't need to do a survey to know that was not in the minds of our NHS and social care staff either. That's not what they're in the business to do. So. If, if, as I say, those quotes are accurate, uh, and and I don't know if they are, but if they are, then there is a there is a, there was and is a fundamental difference in approach.
0: I mean, at the end of the day, there were thousands of deaths, obviously, mm-hmm. and I, I suppose that's the difficulty in this. You, you're dealing with a health crisis where you know there are going to be deaths. Mm-hmm. The care homes has obviously had a huge spotlight, and given everything that we know now. What were the mistakes that were made? I, I
3: think, given what we know now, and, and this, that is a really important caveat, uh, given what we know now, we would have uh, wanted to introduce testing for uh, people leaving hospital before they went to a care home, or home for that matter, uh, quicker than we did there's There's two difficulties though, with that hindsight assessment. One is our testing capacity. We entered this pandemic with a testing capacity of 350 tests a day and uh, and it, it has scaled up remarkably it's It's amazing uh, that where it is now uh, that you know you and I could order home test kits. I've got one sitting in front of me um we're testing uh, in communities we can do such testing as we've introduced in parts of glasgow we've done it elsewhere uh, we're testing close contacts we're doing all of that as well as what hospitals need um in a in a really short space of time but at the, at the beginning it was 350 tests was our daily capacity so we didn't really have the capacity to do it and we believed that the guidance that, that was there, the, the mitigation that was there about isolation, infection prevention and control would mean that you could, in a, care, in a care home setting, protect other residents for the the clinically advised period of 14 days from someone. Now, that wasn't enough. And we know that now, that it wasn't enough. But equally, at the other side of it was, and you know, you can go back and look at the records. The the preparation of the health service wasn't just about what what healthcare do we pause or stop. It was also how do we create space in our hospitals, and the way uh, that, that that produced itself was partly by reducing other procedures that hospitals do. But also by trying to tackle faster the problem that had bedeviled us for some time, which is people who remain in hospital when clinically they don't need to be there anymore. And we know, um, we absolutely know that particularly for elderly and frail people, that additional stay is damaging to their health um, their cognitive and physical functioning is much reduced. The longer they stay past when they need to. And hospitals, we, we believed, were going to have a lot of COVID infection in them. So there's a double danger in those folks staying in hospital beyond when they needed to, a double danger. So the, the logic was well, we need to find a way to discharge them as quickly as we can if the, it's clinically safe to do so. And how do we mitigate? against that infection then spreading in a care home. And we believed that all the things we put in place would let us do that. Hindsight, no. One one thing we should have done was test. But I mean, we
0: the, didn't have the capacity. So the way it's portrayed obviously by opposition is that you almost meaningfully and willfully discharged vulnerable old people into care homes to a death sentence. How does that Feel when that's portrayed like that,
3: it 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 hurts. I don't think there's any other way of describing it. It hurts at a personal level that anyone would think that I would do such a thing, um, and it it makes me angry because it it's it makes me angry because it's not fair. It makes me angry because. It is a willful rewriting of a history that they were part of. You know, I remember the questions from opposition parties about, you know, what are you doing about delayed discharge, and and you know, you need to sort that out. You've been rubbish at it so far. You need to get it sorted. Um, and how many, you know, how quickly will you do it? And and there is an unwillingness, and I, I kind of, there's a bit of me gets it. I just think. Politicians need to step up a bit in these circumstances. I get I get what it is to be in opposition. I get what it is to criticise government and imply that you would have done it better. But actually, the factual record indicates that what the decisions I was taking at that point were decisions that were not being criticised by opposition parties. And, and now they... Take a different view. Uh, that is that is for them to um, reconcile with themselves. But I I it makes me angry because it's not fair, and it's unjust, and it
0: hurts. Person- at a personal level, it hurts. Oh, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I was just I mean the obvious thing clearly, and I know we keep talking <laughs> again about hindsight, but and the capacity for testing. But I guess if it had been a perfect world. You would is the answer that you would have tested everybody as they left hospital.
3: Yes, you, you would have um, you would have made sure. So some people would have got a test because they were there and they had COVID, and um, they would be uh, being treated for that, and then they would have been tested to, to confirm that they were negative. Um, so some would have been treated because that was the basis on which they were in hospital in the first place. Uh, Others who were there for other reasons, yes, ideally, as we do now, as we do now, um, you know, the fact that we introduced that policy and uh, made it really clear is an indicator that that is that is ideally what you would do. Um,
0: But that that is not the situation we had at the outset. And also on responsibility, I mean, care homes, um, I felt at some points were almost abdicating their own responsibility for running their own businesses, if mm. you like, mm. waiting to be told what to do. I mean, how hard was that sometimes listening to that when you were thinking, well, wait a minute, shouldn't you take some responsibility for looking after your own residents? So,
3: so there is a, there's, a, there's another tension there. Um, which I know you're well aware of, and it, and it partly, um, partly underlines the the commitment to a national care service. However, however that plays out, and that is a, a recognition that in the social care sector we need national standards. At the very least, we need national standards. We need better inspection. We need care home staff to be better recognized and valued in all sorts of different ways, not least their pay um but the but none of that was the case um the The NHS you know very early in March, i placed the i used the powers that I had to place the NHS on an emergency footing but, on which it remains um that may change um but and that the reason for that was because that allowed. A degree of central direction so that um, the whole of the health service pointed in the one direction uh, obviously the decisions that are made are, are taken not you know exclusively in St Andrew's house with diktat you know there's lots of conversations with health board chief execs and senior medical directors and so on and so on um, as people would expect the care service is not like that. The care service is a mixed model of care. Um, and so the the working relationship that uh, I had and uh, and was really fortunate to have uh, with COSLA, with Stuart Curry, uh, the counsellor and the lead for social care in COSLA, uh, was really important to try and get as close to a common approach as we could Um, And then, of course, a working relationship with Scottish Care and with CCPS. Uh, But you're dealing with a a mixed model of care. You can't direct and instruct uh, because it doesn't work like that. So you need to try and take people with you. And so there is sometimes, of course, there is uh, a great irony in uh, some parts of the care sector. saying or in in terms well we didn't do that because the government didn't tell us to do that and then also saying in terms yeah we know that's what the government has said we should do but we're not doing it yeah it's frustrating uh and annoying at times but being frustrated and annoyed doesn't fix it so you have to so that's why i had lots of individual conversations with care home providers collective conversations with individual providers, no disrespect to Scottish Care or CCPS, but the, my, my way is to say, no, I, I want to talk to people direct. I want to hear exactly what you're saying and have the discussion with you and try and convince you. Um, so that, that, in some senses, is very labour intensive, but th- there's no other way around it.
0: In terms of the positives that can come out of a pandemic, I mean, is, is this perhaps one that it's kind of accelerated plans towards a proper discussion about what a national care service might look like?
3: Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely one.
0: Yeah, absolutely one. And I think it is uh, so
3: absolutely a, a dawning realisation wider than government. And it needs to be wider than government and wider than political parties as well. That adult social care is really important and we need to be prepared to take the decisions that put the money in there that needs to be in there. And that's why I commissioned the independent review um, from uh, with Derek Feely as the chair with a with a, a, a remarkable uh, remit, more remarkable timescale uh, in that, you know, what I said to to him was um uh, I, I want you to do this and to have completed it so that at the start of 2021, you have recommendations. Uh, so you've got six months, less than six months. Um, and all credit to him and his panel, um, which was pretty impressive group of people he had, um, that they did that. And that was because we need we need not just to have a debate about what do we do about adult social care, We need to have a basis for that debate, and that's his recommendations. What do you do? What do you not do? Uh, And the really important thing about what he did was listening to, as I did before in Social Security, let's hear from the people who use this service about what's wrong, what's good with it, what's wrong with it. Uh, And it's wider than elderly, much wider. It's adult social care, and so what needs changed. And as always, People who who use the services are really not asking for very much, you know, not asking for very much at all. It's now for the the current parliament and the current government to to make that a reality.
0: Are you saddened that you won't be part of that? I mean, given that, you know, helping to set up the social security system from a standing start, that's something that you enjoy seeing accomplished. Yeah.
3: Yes, it is. Absolutely, it is. Um, and I am a bit, you know, I, I am. a am a bit. There's a bit of me that wishes I was still there and able to drive the creation of a national care service and the remobilisation of the NHS to vitally important tasks with all that I now believe I have learned and know. Um, and, but there's also a wee bit of that, Mandy, if I'm completely frank with myself, which is, you know, a degree of of personal arrogance, which is, you know, oh, I could sort that. I, oh, let me in about it. Um, and of course, you know, I know that nobody's indispensable. And I have every confidence that the current government, led by our first minister, will deliver on it um, and deliver on it really well. Uh, and I, I also know that I, I'm i not convinced I have, after the last 18 months in particular, the, um, the energy to work at that pace for five more years. And it needs work at that pace for five more years.
0: That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, had you made the decision to stand down at this election, prior to all of the pandemic and everything else? I mean, no. would things have been different? I don't know if things would have been different or not. I hadn't made the decision prior to the pandemic. Um,
3: but I think it was a, an honest realisation that that two two things. One, if I was re-elected, I would want to be in government again. I would want to be the health secretary again. and. I did not think that i had i could not be confident that I had the the energy to work at that pace for five more years, and I think it needs to work at that pace um and also th- there is a huge price paid by pe- by your your loved ones uh by by my partner susan by my family um for decisions that i take uh and you know, I think there's a limit to how long you can ask people to pay that price. It's not just not seeing you and uh, not uh, and you being pro- me being preoccupied, hugely preoccupied, and uh, not able to do things. Although in the course of the pandemic, we weren't able to do none of us were able to do very much. But you know what I mean. But it's also seeing you being publicly criticised. And that's tough. You know, that, that's really tough if you uh, can't jump onto social media and say, you know, that's my auntie, that's my pal, that's my partner,
0: that's not fair. That's tough. You once said to me that one of the frustrations about being health secretary is that opposition are always looking for your scalp, they're always mm. asking you mm. to resign. Mm. Have there been times over the last eighteen months where you've actually wanted to resign?
3: No, there's never been a time when I've wanted to resign there was There was a, a a point uh when I seriously considered whether or not it would be better if I resigned because we wouldn't be completely distracted by the calls for my resignation and uh i And and the the really fantastic thing is that senior political colleagues, who've probably been in the same place, um, without me having to say anything, knew that, and were the ones who said, don't, don't. It's not fair, it's wrong, we need you to keep going, just keep going. Uh, So
0: and you don't think you just needed a wee holiday and then you'd be busy <laughs> back to get back into government no i
3: don't think i needed a wee holiday and then I, no i don't think so i don't think so there's so much to do i mean i know uh, i i know really well how much there is to do um and it is all positive progressive work but it it, it needs it needs driven and it needs a lot of energy and pace behind it, whilst at the same time you're taking account of the fact that we have a cohort of NHS and social care staff who are knackered, physically and emotionally knackered. And there's a job to explain that to the public, that you can't flick a switch and the health service is back as if nothing had happened. And equally, you want to embed some of the innovation and some of the progressive change that happened really fast as a consequence of, of people dealing with a pandemic. Everything from um, the, the expansion of hospital at home, which I think is a fantastic uh, service, to the, the devolving down closer to the frontline decision making, which of course happened during the pandemic. You want to hang on to all those things, um, but uh,
0: it it needs
3: more than a wee holiday, and you'll get back into it.
0: I mean, the first minister has been front and centre as well of all of this. Absolutely, and you've been very up close and personal with her day in day out. Mm. Has your view on Nicola Sturgeon changed in any way over this last eighteen months? I th- I think uh,
3: so. I. I uh, I entered government with uh, a degree of a significant degree of admiration for her political skills uh, and her as a person. And what has happened is that that has increased hugely. Uh, I am astonished, genuinely astonished by her intellectual capacity, her work rate and her her humanity. You know, she's she really does care. Uh, and not just about doing the job well, she 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 gets how human this all is and she cares about those that work with her um, and has been a huge source of support. She's also she's a top taskmaster. You know, uh, you need to know your stuff and it, uh, not probably in part because she was a health secretary. Uh, but also because she reads everything and she reads all the sage minutes and she reads articles about things. So you better be on your toes to know exactly what you're
0: doing. And that's good. You know, that's, that's really good. Some portray Cabinet as very much Nicholas Fiefdom. Nobody gets to say anything. There is no discussion. Having come through this, where surely people should be viewing, listening to everybody else, is that your impression of cabinet
3: no it's not no it's not there's lots there's lots of discussion and there's lots of uh um debate about what happens um and it is entirely possible to disagree with the first minister y- y- you know y- y- you need to have grounds for it um if she's got a, a particular view about what she thinks should happen then if you're going to disagree with that, then you need to know clearly why and what you propose instead. Disagreement, for its own sake, is neither use nor ornament to MD. You need to have an alternative or a modification of the proposition. But it's, it's not my experience that, you know, it's her fiefdom and you, you, you darn the answer back. You just need to know what you're talking about.
0: I mean, this is on a completely different note, but on that particular portrayal of discussion and debate, one of the thorny subjects has been the Gender Recognition Act and the reform mm. of that. And no one has been able to take that forward or find agreement or find consensus. I mean, for Eugene, personally, you know, as a feminist, as a lesbian, as a health secretary, as former political advisor that helped get through um, equal marriage, etc., how difficult has this debate been? Well, it is a, it,
3: it, yeah, it's difficult. It's a difficult debate, and I think it's not been helped um, by the toxicity of the debate. And I don't think we will resolve this. It's unresolved. It's not oh. going to disappear. So we need to find a way to resolve this. I am absolutely convinced that you can extend rights to groups of people without taking rights away it's not it's this is not some kind of fixed pie that if you carve out a chunk for one group you inevitably take a bit away from somebody else and you know that is just a preposterous proposition so we need to find a way through this that involves actually people who have differing views on the proposition working together to find the answer. That that's exactly, in my opinion, how you do that. You need to find a place where that can happen. And and there will then be people who take different views who will not be content with that. Okay. But the the I'm I believe that the core of people who take different views can come together, hear each other with respect and proper listening ears, as my mum used to say, proper listening ears with the, the, the knowledge that not quite you're all in this room and you're no getting it to, you come up with a solution, but virtually that. Your job is to come up with a solution here. What is it? How do we do
0: this? Has the toxicity of it surprised you? I mean, to see people that are all probably in the pursuit of equality, yeah, at each other's throats in a way. I mean, it seems to me that the arguments and the debates aren't just—they're not exclusively now just around the proposals around the G R A reform. It's kind of been a much bigger awareness of conflation of sex and gender and mm-hmm. philosophical issues around mm-hmm. what is a woman. Um, and people are feeling just—it's almost come at a defensive um, positioning from the very start.
3: Yeah, I, I think I think those comments are fair. I don't genuinely don't think it's been helped by the last year or so. I don't think lockdown <clears throat> has helped debate and discussion, mm. uh, political debate and discussion, in a small way in the parliament and in a big way. You know there are there are. Um, intense positions adopted, which would not have been the case if we could actually have met each other face to face and had conversations, and you know, had a <clears throat> a drink or a cup of coffee and a bit of an argument and so on. Um, and lockdown has not helped that because it's been done via uh, an unnatural media, i.e., social media which is also open to abuse. So I, I am absolutely certain people say things on Twitter and to a lesser extent on Facebook that they would never say to your face. And half the folks saying it, you don't know, and I'm not even convinced half of them are real. So, you get, so it becomes this big thing that is never going to find uh, a commonality of solution and, and, and is never going to be respectful. So my hope is that as we move out of this unnatural way of living, which we're all doing, that we will find a a way of coming together, as I've just described. The the government cannot resolve this. The people involved with clear views and and positions and arguments that, that are perfectly legitimate need to work together to find a way through it.
0: Maybe a government can assembly.
3: facilitate that. Yeah. yeah, government can facilitate that absolutely. But it can't, you know, you you can't have government sitting in a darkened room here, writing a policy position that's going to magic it all away. And it won't work. Way pa- I don't think that's a good thing to do anyway on something like this. But we're way past that now. People need. We need to. People need to come together and go through all those stages. Uh, as you know, I, I, it's not the panacea and it's not the, the template for everything, but you know, setting up the, the social security system and the experience panels, you needed to work your way through a lot of legitimate hurt and grievance and upset that was personal to then let people get to a place where they felt they'd been heard and then they by God, they put their minds together to find solutions.
0: Hey, Jean, do you know anybody with the kind of experience that might be able to convene a citizens' assembly around GRA reform? I'm sure there are lots of people. I like your solution anyway. I think getting a bottle of wine and everybody be <laughs> I'm not sure it's a great headline, though, for a former health secretary. No, particularly, Mandy, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess just finally, I mean, Nicola, when I, I interviewed her probably actually this time last year in the run up to her 50th birthday, um, she talked about how the pandemic will undoubtedly had changed her, had already changed her. Mm. How's it changed you? Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. I think, I think, and I. the caveat of this is that I think there's much more, for me to reflect on um, but I think it has um, in some ways made my emotions much closer to the surface and and made me less afraid of those it has um, it has made me much more conscious of both what I know and what I don't know and it's also I think um, i I Make So. So I have always been somebody who um, reaches decisions quickly, um, and uh, I think it has given me an insight that there are always a couple more questions to ask before you decide. You might you might broadly know what you're going to decide. Let's do a couple more checking questions. Just to be sure. Um, I actually think Five Years in Hollywood has done that for me, uh, to be honest. Um, but the pandemic absolutely. Um, and I think it, it's also made me much more conscious of the the depth and breadth of importance of mental health and good mental health. Um and and uh, understanding that, that that truly does affect us all.
0: Has it made you more aware of your own mortality when we've all had to think about death, if you like? Yeah,
3: yeah. to an extent it has. I'm laughing because at one of the uh, first books I read, uh, after, so I have a huge pile of books at my bedside table that I've not read, um, and one of the first ones I read was Richard Holloway's Waiting for the Last Bus. Uh, which Susan found quite distressing, actually. But she was a bit anxious about, you know, having stopped being the health secretary, being 67, and now she's reading a book about getting ready to die. Um, I've always had a thing that we are, and actually it was, again, when I was a first minister and uh, funeral benefits and funeral payments was part of, was a, a growing recognition that we are so reluctant to talk about this one thing that we all know is inevitable and will happen to every single one of us. Um, and, and I'm, I, I still shy. I still take my thinking so far and then go, right, I'm not thinking about that anymore. Um, and that's partly, I suppose, like lots of people, there's a bit of me thinks, uh, well, I'm still 30. and. I don't like the idea that, you know, with a fair wind, I could have 20 more years. So, well, that's not long enough. I'm sorry, that's not long enough. Um, so there is always a, a bit of me that shies away, stops at a certain point. But it certainly has made me, it's probably a combination of the pandemic and of the fact of being 67, that, you know, I am much more conscious of my own mortality. and. Therefore, more conscious, I'm not promising I'll do it well, of the importance of maxing out your time. And that includes being more willing to understand and be kind when people, dis- when people take views you don't agree with.
0: As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends, because everybody has an interest in politics.